Good morning. Welcome to Relevant Faith Church this morning. My name is Mike Wilmer. I'm the lead pastor here at Relevant Faith. We are excited that you have joined us this morning. We're continuing in a series that we have been preaching throughout the summer called Giants. And basically, it is derived from a book written by John Maxwell called Running with the Giants, where the premise of this idea is, comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1. This is what the Bible says. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. That's kind of the premise of this book that was written. It's also the premise of our, of our series that we've been preaching. And it comes from the idea that there's this crowd of witnesses in heaven that are basically, they're cheering on a race. I just had the opportunity, and it, it, it's perfect um, illustration. I had the opportunity yesterday through Chick-fil-A to serve at the St. Jude Run. And the St. Jude Run is this massive, massive event where almost 3,500 people run to raise money for St. Jude Children's Hospital. And they have raised tons and tons of money over the years. It's one of the most worthwhile causes that I've ever gotten the opportunity to partner with. And there's this scene that takes place when they're running down um, W.M. Kumpf uh, Boulevard downtown, past the Civic Center. Chick-fil-A has a food truck, a mobile kitchen set up there where we donated and gave away like right around 4,200 Chick-fil-A sandwiches to runners, but they're running past, and people are screaming, they're yelling, they've got these, those, those stick noisemakers, they're banging together, and it's just this wow moment as they are coming in, and then they do this, after all the runners, and that's with every, and there's like people running from all over, there's a group of people from Peoria that went to Memphis, and then ran from Memphis to Peoria, they're running from all kinds of towns, in and around, from Chicago, St. Louis, almost tons of small little towns, and so they're running into this fanfare, and it's, I believe it's like it's a, it's a picture of what the Scripture's talking about. There's this crowd of witnesses, a crowd of people, giants of faith in heaven cheering us on. And so the idea of this series would be, what would they say if one of them stepped out of heaven for that moment, stepped out of that crowd, and ran a lap with us? What would they say? How would they encourage us? How would they entice us to live our lives for Christ? And so we've been handling this, and this is the seventh week that we've been doing it. And so today, we're going to talk about a gentleman in Scripture whom I love. I love, to, I love his story. I love his book. I love everything about this man because it shows this great perseverance and great power in prayer. And so his name is Nehemiah. And the, title, the topic of my message and our, my thoughts this morning are sim- very simply prayer changes everything. Prayer changes everything. And so we're going to talk about what would Nehemiah say. And can I ask a real quick question? Feel free to lift your hand if you want. And I think it, 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 it pretty much, I think everyone would say yes at some point in time in their life. But have you ever felt overwhelmed in your life? I mean, unless you are dead already, or you are a hermit who sits in your house and does nothing, then you've been overwhelmed by life. And so I think Nehemiah would say, for when life seems overwhelming or problems overwhelm you, he would tell you that prayer changes everything. 
Let's look at it in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 2, and 2, 3, and 4. I read the New Living Translation. You can use it on your device if you like. It'll be up on the screen as well. But this is what it says. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hanani, one of the brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to God, to the God of heaven. Here we have this overwhelming situation for the people of Israel, and their gates have been torn down, and their, their walls are left in shambles. The city is being destroyed, and Nehemiah hears it, and he does three things. He mourned, he fasted, he prayed. He mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. So here's the, the question I want you to ask yourself. There's two questions that I want you to think about during the time that we have together this morning. And the first one is very simply, why should God answer, even answer my prayer? You know, people stop praying because they feel like God's not answering. And so the question I want you to ask yourself is, why should God answer your prayer? And the other question goes along with that is, do you actually know why he should? Because when you think about that question, you're asked that question. If I were just to walk up to you and say, okay, so tell me, why, would, why should God answer your prayer? You're kind of going to look at me like, what? What kind of question is that? He should just answer it because same reason you should answer your phone when I call you. Because it's the good thing to do. It's the nice thing to do, right? So but here, I, I, I feel like there's more to it than that. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse number 14 this is what the Bible says. It says, we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. So there's this confidence that we should have because we know that God hears us. But hearing us and responding to us are two different things. We know he hears us. Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever cried out to God and say, hey, God, can you hear me? Is it cool? Are you listening to me right now? Are you understanding the words that are coming out of my mouth? Sorry to coin one of my favorite movies, but Rush Hour, that scene, hilarious. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Maybe it's just me. And if you're visiting here, what you get with me is a very transparent person who shares my struggles, my doubts, my challenges, my issues, not in a way to frighten you, but in a way to say, hey, I am just like you, navigating this life the same as you. I've actually said that before, literally those words. Do you understand that I'm saying to you right now, God? Because you're not talking back. But I believe there's this method to getting God's ear in a way where he will respond. Number one, it's in your, fill in your note sheet. You received one of those, and I put some blanks in there to help keep us connected, keep, uh, keep me moving forward in the right direction. But number one, and the, the idea that prayer changes everything. So prayer changes everything when you base your request on God's character. 
We're going to talk about some very important things as it, of how we approach God and the things that we say because it is very important what comes out of our mouth when we approach God. And so prayer really changes everything when you base your requests on God's character. Getting back to our story and back to our giant of faith, Nehemiah, he said in chapter 1, verses 5, in the first half of verse 6, he said, Then I said, remember, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. He is actually addressing God's character when he says, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant with, of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. He's actually reminding God, not that God needs a reminder from us, but remember how important the words are that come out of your mouth. He's actually reminding God who he is, who his character is. God, you are awesome. You love your creation. You keep your covenant with all of those, with unfailing love for everyone who obeys you and everyone who loves you. And then he says, listen to my prayer. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people. It's the conviction of the heart connected to who God's character are. You have to, it's, it's, it, this isn't just lip service either. You have to believe that God is awesome, that God is great, that God loves you, even in spite of you. I, it's one of the things that changed my life in the time that I spend with God is I actually believe what I'm saying. I believe that he's awesome. I believe that he is mighty. I believe that he is great. I believe that he is a good God, even in spite of what I may experience myself, or even in spite of some of the choices that I've made myself, that God is indeed a good God. Because after all, that's his character. When I base my requests on who he is and how powerful he is, I get the opportunity to, instead of talking to God about my mountain, I'm able to talk to my mountain about my God. Or let me say it like this. Instead of talking to God about my problem, I'm able to talk to my problem about my God. Or maybe that doesn't sit well. Maybe, maybe it's like this. Maybe that you are so overwhelmed, so stressed out, so depressed, so anxious, so filled with, you're so tense that it's like uh, you can't relax. You can actually talk to that that feeling and say, wait a minute, I serve the God that gives me the peace that passes all understanding. You don't have any place in me depression. You have any place in me anxiety. You don't have place in me stress. I speak, I, I, I speak on a regular basis to the God who is the God of peace. Now, there's a whole, that's, that's just the beginning. There's a whole lot more to that process, but there's got to be a beginning. There has to be a conviction in your heart as to who he actually is. One of the things I prefer to do, you don't have to do this, but it's pretty powerful and it works for me, is I prefer to pray the names of God, who he is, because it's his character. When I'm in need of provision, well, he's Jehovah Jireh because he's my provider. When I'm in need of peace, he's Jehovah Shalom. He's the prince of peace. If I need victory over sin or I need victory in a situation, he's Jehovah Nisi. He's my banner of victory. There's power in knowing the names of God, believing the names of God, and actually speaking them. 
But unfortunately, we approach God with this woe is me mentality that we're constantly overwhelmed. Look at what Nehemiah said about God and, and what I read. He said, you're great. That's God's position. You're awesome. That shows his power. And you keep your promises. That shows his covenant. That speaks to character. I mean, how many of you would love to be in relationship with somebody who does what they say they're going to do, loves you for you without judgment and without casting you away, and has this position in your life to continually lift and build you up? How many of you would like to be in a relationship with that person? Well, let me introduce you to him. His name is Jesus. His name is not Mike, because there'll be times when Mike doesn't listen well. Man, I should have chosen my words a little bit more carefully. That's my wife, y'all. This is our life, and I love it. But this is the God that we serve, the character that he has. Mark chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, and intently, he looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. That's his character. With you, it might be impossible. With God, it's completely possible. Matter of fact, I'll put it like this. One of my mentors in life once told me, he says, Mike, you got to do everything that's possible. And let me give you some context. I was seeking out God's plan for my life as I was leaving a ministry position. I had this, what I call an Abrahamic call when he said to go, and I had no idea where I was going. I just literally packed up and left. It's kind of a scary moment. No job, no income, no nothing. Got a family. God says, go. I'm like, okay, here we go. And we just leave. And I'm like seeking wisdom in this process. And one of my mentors says, you have to do everything that is humanly possible for you. So I put myself out there, resumes, whatever, whatever, whatever. He says, you got to let God do what's impossible. You can't hire yourself. That's not possible. Let him do what's impossible. Instead of the reverse or the, or the, the antithesis of that is to, I'm standing here and I'm waiting on you, God. Now, don't get me wrong. There is absolutely a time to wait. But when you broke, got no job, and got no direction, that's not the time to sit and wait. There's an action required on your half. Now, you have to navigate it prayerfully. You have to navigate it with wisdom to see, make sure you land where you're supposed to land and do what you're supposed to do and be where God wants you to be. But there's this part of, of this process that is actionable on your side. You can't just say, oh, I'm just waiting on the Lord. Because you just stand there and you accomplish nothing. Number two, so, so when prayer changes everything, when you base your request on God's character, but prayer changes everything when you confess the weaknesses of your life. When you confess the weaknesses of your life. Look at Nehemiah, the second half of verse six. He says, I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. Nehemiah is this great man of faith, and he's, what is he doing? He's coming to God with what? With confession. There's got to be conviction in your heart as to who God's character is. There has to be a willingness to confess with your mouth. We must have an honest account with who we are and where we are in our journey. You are one of the greatest liars in the history of the world because you lie to yourself. It's what we do. The action that comes from that usually is I lie to myself and I say to myself where I think I am and then I actually believe that that's where I am when the reality is I am far from there. 
Hence, you walk into a church, ask somebody, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. Knowing just three days ago you were actually mad at God because you didn't have something. There's got to be this confession, this honest account of who we are and where we are in our journey. Here's the question that I would love to ask, and this is rhetorical, so don't answer it. But have you really ever truly been desperate for God? Have you truly actually been to the place where you say, my help comes from you alone? And I mean the very breath in my lungs, God, if it weren't for you. I was listening to a worship song this morning and as I was preparing and getting ready, and it was this song that says, without you there is no me. Have we ever truly got to that place where we can say to God, without you there is no me? Because that's when you begin to confess things. When you look at God for all your sustenance, not just provision when you need it, not just help when you need it, but when you say, without you there is no me, without you there's no breath in my lungs, without you there's no steps that I'm able to take, without you there is no me, that's desperate for him. You have to understand that when I say confessing our weaknesses, you have to understand the power that's in that because God's power is perfect when we are weak. That's why Paul even said, I'll boast upon my weaknesses because that's when he is his greatest. James chapter 4 verse 6 says it like this, and he gives grace generously as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So many people walk around with their chests puffed up and their heads held high as if they just accomplished something in life. That's the pride of life, but he says, I'm going to give grace to those that are humble, and he's going to give it generously. Here's what's cool about God's generous grace. God's generous grace really hits us when we need it the most. I remember... When I gave my life to Christ, I was like this on fire for Jesus, dancing, shouting, screaming, hallelujah, and all day long. Transitioned into having this walk with Christ, eight, nine months old, ten months old, a year old, and become this legalistic person that looks at people and judges them. Oh, you're not living your life right. Get out of here. You're foolish, you're worthless, you're not living. I, I, I literally, for a brief period of my life, forgot where I came from. Forgot who I once was in my life, in my walk, and very ungracious towards others. And then lo and behold, wouldn't you know it that several years later, I'd find myself in a position where I was in need of more grace than I had ever given in my life. And God generously gave grace, even though I did not necessarily deserve it. And so from that moment on, I, I, I said, I will err on the side of grace with everything that I am. Hence part of the reason why somebody can literally stab me in my back and I'll turn around and hug them with a knife still stuck in it. I can't help it. It's just, it's just so deep in me that I just can't help myself now. But that's the kind of grace that God has. The one that says, when I approach him and I'm not, and I'm not recognizing his character, or I'm, pri I'm, proud, I'm, proud, I'm prideful, he's the one saying, I love you. There's this process when we approach God and understand 
what happens and, and understand how powerful prayer is. And so prayer changes everything when you confess the weaknesses in your life. Number three, prayer changes everything when you claim, it's one of my favorite things in the world to do, when you claim the promises of God. Going back to Nehemiah in, verse, in chapter 1 and verse number 8, he said, Please remember what you told your servant Moses. Nehemiah is going back in history now. He's like, okay, God, remember, this is what you said to Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. That's what you told him. God, we are faithful to you. Notice what he's doing, because people for Jerusalem, give you some context, they returned back to Jerusalem after being in exile, returned back to Jerusalem, basically came back to their faith. Only to, be only to be sacrificed, only to be ridiculed, only to have their land destroyed. They came back to faith. Imagine, some of them are probably, and some of y'all would be like, hey, you know, I came back for this. No, 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 no. I came back for the milk and honey. Where is that at? I didn't come back for this. I didn't come back for destruction. I didn't come back for ridicule. I didn't come back for this. And so Nehemiah is saying, hey, remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I'll scatter you among the nations. And it sounds like, wait a minute, that doesn't fit. He was recognizing how faithful Jew, the Jews had been because they returned to Jerusalem. It's like, oh, wait a minute, we have returned. We were scattered because we were unfaithful, but we've returned, so now we're faithful, God. Come on now, do your thing. There's a confidence in who he is and what he said he would do. Nehemiah was reminding God of who he was. And so they're surrounded by these people that are trying to destroy them. He says, wait a minute, God, you said, so there's two parts to this. Israel was faithful in coming home, but there were some others unfaithful to God that were trying to destroy him. And what did he say to them? Hey, you said you were going to scatter those unfaithful. How about you scatter those folks that are burning down our gates? Again, he's just reminding God of who God is. This is a promise that you gave us. Matter of fact, in Numbers chapter 23, verse number 19, it says, God, and I shared this even in my prayer this morning, and didn't even realize I even put it in here. God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Have he ever, has he ever promised and not carried it through? That's a rhetorical question. The answer to all of those is no. God has never promised anything that he's not seen through. Now, he might have promised some things that hasn't seen come to, come to pass just yet. But that means we're just waiting on his timing. Don't jump off too quickly. God's timing is everything. His call is everything. His timing is everything. Question then becomes, did God forget? Now, I think it's more to remind us of our faith in him. Matter of fact, there are over 7,000 promises in scripture waiting to be spoken. Waiting, I even think, to be claimed. And I'm not talking about a name it and claim it because the, God, the gospel never promises you riches and wealth on this earth. In heaven, yeah, absolutely, but not on this earth. So this isn't a name it and claim it gospel. Matter of fact, that's the false gospel. Someone starts telling you, hey, send me $49.99. I'll give you a prayer cloth. That means you can ask for anything you want and it'd be yours. Yeah, do yourself a favor, change the channel. Because that's not, that's not the gospel. That's not the truth of the gospel. But there are promises that God has given us that are in Scripture that they transform our lives. They change 
who we are. The last uh, strength that I want to share with you before we get to making it practical in our lives, in our hearts, is prayer changes everything when you are specific in what you ask for. When you are specific in what you ask for. Again, we're going to go back to Nehemiah. I encourage you, read Nehemiah, especially the first chapter. This is him praying. It's a good model for us to pray. And hey, this, if this guy did it and it worked for him, Nehemiah was specific in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. He said, please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. He was specific. I need favor from the king. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. He's being specific about a situation. We like to pray generally. We wake up and say, oh, Lord, bless me today. Okay. He's going to bless you, but you may not. You have, in your mind, you know what that blessing looks like. In his mind, he's blessing you. And when they don't connect, well, God, you just didn't listen to me this morning. I'd have been like, no, you weren't very specific. But that's why I'm not God. Because you come at me, I come right back at you, smart mouth. I'm telling everybody, it's a good thing I'm not God for everyone. But we are specific in what we ask for. There needs to be a clarity in our minds and in our hearts. What I need from God, I have not because I ask not. I ask folks for stuff all the time. And you know what's the worst thing they can say to me? No. Okay. No for me is not yet. That's why I'm a good salesman. No for me is just not yet. Oh, okay, you said no, that's cool. I'll come back and check with you soon. And I'll just keep coming back and checking with you soon. Eventually, you'll say yes. Tying it up with all the barbers I got. I needed barbers for back to school bash. I got them all. You know why? Because I kept on asking. God said, knock and the door will be open. Ask and you shall receive. That word ask means keep on asking. So I'm going to keep on asking until they say yes. doesn't mean I'm going to ask you every single day, although with the barbers I pretty much did. But we have not because we ask not. And I think even more specifically, we have not because we ask not specifically for what we need. You ask God to bless you, but you really need money for your light bill. Well, how about you say, God bless me with money for my light bill? It works. It works when you're specific. First Chronicles chapter 4, verse 10 says it like this. He was the one who prayed to the God of Israel, oh, that you would bless me and expand my territory. There it is. Bless and expand my territory. Please be with me in all that I do and keep me from trouble and pain. It's one thing to say, oh, God, be with me. Okay, cool. He's with you. Okay, what then? What then? And then he, said, he goes on and says, please be with me in all that I do. Keep me from trouble and pain. And here's that, what does it say then? And, and God granted him his request. Now, that's not to say that if you walk around praying, God, keep me from trouble and pain, that you're going to always be trouble and pain. Nope, because James said, you, in this life, you will face trials many, of many kinds. So it's not just about not, it's, it's specific. I'm going to be specific with this situation, specific in this moment. And just because God doesn't specifically give you that, doesn't mean he's not listening. It just means he's got something else for you. Our perspective of God has got to change. We've become so me-minded that our, our perspective is, is skewed. You know where I see this the most? Let me tell you where I see this the most. I see this the most in my 
part-time job at Chick-fil-A. Folks are crazy about chicken. I've been literally cussed out because a pickle was on their sandwich. Like, my bad? We made a mistake. Let me, let me fix that for you. And I offer you a free meal because your meal was messed up. And they still want to yell at me because there's a pickle on their sandwich. Our perspective about everything. I didn't get exactly what I wanted, so now I'm going to tell you about it. And I'm going to be mad at you for it. That's why we do the same thing to God. Man, this job's going to change my life. God, give me this job. And then you don't get it. It's like, eh, he don't care. Call him, ask for your money back. But this is, our perspective is so skewed when it comes to God. But we have to, we have to, the things that we have to realize and understand is there has to be a conviction in our heart of God's character. There has to be confession from our mouth. See, this isn't just a, and if, okay, pick and choose. You gave me four things, I'm going to choose one or two of them. No, this is the process. Have a conviction of God's character. Confess with your mouth. Be confident in who he is and what he said he would do and then speak with clarity. Be specific. So let's, let's wrap this up and make this practical if we can. This is the part where I hope to give you something based on what I just preached that will help you walk this out every day of your life. So the very first point I want to give you to make it practical is very simply share your needs with God. Share your needs with God. Psalm chapter 18 verse 6 this is what he says, but in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. He says, yes, I prayed to my God for help, and he heard me from his sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears. You know, we want to bring, we, here's what we do when we have needs and we have struggles. We run from the situation rather than bringing it to God. We run from it. And then we cover it up and the guys, well, I'm just going to have to pray on this. That's not how life works. You can't run and pray. The two things don't go together. I mean, if you're running, if you're running from a bear, you're praying, God, don't let this bear get me. And it might work in that case. But when you're running from God and you're running from situations and you're running from hurts and you're running from pain, praying and running, they don't go together. So share your needs with God. In your distress, cry out to the Lord. Pray for him to him for help. But be, be, be careful and be alert and be mindful of how that help's going to come. There's an old illustration, an old story about a guy trapped in a, trapped in a, in a, in a storm and the waters are rising. And someone comes along and says, hey, comes along on a, on a boat and says, hey, Need some help? Why don't you climb on in? I'll get you out of here. He's like, no, I'm good. God's got me. And the waters continue to rise, and he continues to struggle, and along comes another boat. Says, you need a ride? No, God's got me. I'm, I'm good to go. He's covering me. I, I'm waiting on the Lord, and he's got me. Waters become overf overflowing, overwhelming. Helicopter flies by. Hey, you need a ride? You need a lift out of this mess? No, God's got me. I'm good. Because we have this expect, expectation of how God's going to meet our need. And when we see it in a way that doesn't look familiar, no, we're good. God's, not that, God's got me. And now you're drowning because you had three opportunities to get out of trouble and decided to hang out in the water. 
For me, that first boat, yeah, let me get out of here. I ain't even trying it. This is God's provision. See, we miss it because we're expecting it to come from someone else or come in a specific way. And then we fail in that because it's like, wow, I missed it. And then you start to look back, oh, man, two boats and a helicopter, and I still didn't get it. But this is what we do. We share needs with God. And then he says, but in my distress, I cried out to Lord, prayed for my God to help, but be prepared to accept the help when it comes. Number two, so you share your needs with God. Number two, you give it to God, and then you let it go. We like to give it to God. We don't like to let it go. We give it to God, but we don't like to let it go. Just so you know, leaving something at the foot of the cross literally means I walk away from it. I don't pick it back up and carry it around with me and say, you know what? Yeah, I'm not quite ready to give that one to you, God. I'm going to put it back in my backpack and let it weigh me down until I can't walk anymore. We have to give those things to God and we have to let them go. What are we giving to God? People, mainly, when they hurt us. We have to say things like, I forgive you. And then we let it go. Can I help you real quick with what forgiveness isn't? Forgiveness isn't, I forgive you, but don't you dare ever even look at me. Yeah, let me, that's not forgiveness, y'all, just so you know. And then people cover that up by saying, oh, I'm supposed to forgive you, but I don't have to like you. Yeah, that's not how that works either. The kingdom of God embraces one another. Period. There's no comma. There's no but. There's no however. There's no if. There's no then. Buts, ifs, and thens come from God. They don't come from us. There should be no, no premises that we put on forgiveness. I'll forgive you if you don't ever do it again. Yeah, that's not, gonna, that's not how it works. I know, and that's what makes forgiveness so hard. We have to give it to God and we have to let it go. Psalm 55 verse 22 says, give your burdens to the Lord and he will take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and fall. It's like, well, wait a minute. I feel like I'm always falling. And that's fine. But the fall finishes when you land. And you've hit rock bottom so hard you can't move. God's not going to let you get there. He's going to let you hit. But he's going to be holding you up. He's going to be holding enough of you up to where you don't, embr- you don't take on the full impact of that fall. Those burdens, you've got to let them go. doesn't matter what they are. It doesn't matter how much they've hurt you, because there's folks out there that have hurt you and done things to you, things that you did not deserve. There are folks out there that have hurt you and done things to you that you just, that have shaped who you are. That was never the intention. And in order for you to truly experience what God has for you, your prayer is, God, I forgive them. I let go what they did to me. You know, the, actually, the, believe it or not, the process of salvation, genuine salvation in its purest form, it's the Greek word sozo, S-O-Z-O. You know what it literally means? To cancel all debt with no expectation of return. That's what salvation is. And the question you asked as you go through a process like this is, Think of that person that harmed you. Think of that person that hurt you. Think of that person that did some unspeakable things to you. 
and you say things like this, you ask yourself, well, what do they owe you? Well, they owe me forgive. They owe, they owe me an explanation. They owe me restitution. They owe me, they owe me, they owe me. You declare what they owe you. Salvation says, I canceled that debt. Yeah, it's quiet in here now. It's painful. Ain't no lie. I, I had to, I'm, not, I'm not exempt from this. I walked through this just like you. There are people in my life that have hurt me tremendously. Tremendously. And I've spoken. This is what they owe me. And then I've also said, let me cancel that debt. They owe me nothing. That's walking with Christ. That's walking in relationship with his people. And that's letting things go. Third and last. Devin, you can come and get set now. I'm going to finish this message right here. Third and last thing I want to share with you to hopefully make this practical. I said practical, not easy, right? I did say that? Okay. As long as you all understand that. You have to realize this is, this is the opportunity you get to give God some praise and maybe a little hallelujah, a little amen, a little glory, whatever you are prone to. But your problem is no problem for God. 